Thank you. Thank you very much and welcome. I'm Father Mitch Packle. Welcome to Scripture and Tradition, where we take a look at this Holy Word of God and sacred scripture, but we do so through the background of the sacred tradition that comes to us from the apostles, and we especially want to focus on how we pray through the scriptures. How do we enter into the scripture to understand more about Jesus, to get to know Jesus better by meditating on him in sacred scriptures. Now, we love to have you become part of the show, and you can do that in a number of ways. First of all, you can do like these wonderful people have done here in our live studio audience and come right here to beautiful Irondale, Alabama and be part of our live studio audience. Second way, if you can't get here, you can always call during the live show, which is on Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time. And the phone number, if you are in North America, is 1-800-221-9460. 1-800-221-9460. If you are outside North America, still call 1, the country code, and then 205 2712980. You can also send us questions and comments by email, writing to scripture and tradition at ewtn.com, or follow us and participate with the show on YouTube. Now, today we are going to take a look at the 12 disciples that Jesus chose and how even with their own particular limitations and sinfulness, Christ intended for them to share his authority and power and become the spiritual fathers of the church known as the apostles. So that's what we're going to be looking at. Now we are still going through my book, Wheat and Tares. Restoring the Moral Vision of a Scandalized Church. You can get that at EWTN's Religious Catalog. Just go to EWTNRC.com. It's item number 81098. So, let's take a look. Last week we took a look at the introduction to our Lord's Choice of the Apostles. Um, now let's take a look at what we see here now. The three first Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are known as the synoptic gospel. Now, you recognize the word optic. Optic means sight, right? Call, we have opticians and such. So we're talking about optics when we deal with binoculars and um, other devices for seeing. So... Synoptic means that they see together. They see in, in the same vision of the life of Christ. And there's a basic similarity to those three Gospels. St. John writes a little bit differently. And all three synoptic Gospels tell us about how our Lord chose the, the apostles. Now, a couple things to keep in mind. First, the choice of 12 
disciples to become apostles is <clears throat> clearly meant to be parallel to the choice of 12 tribes in Israel. Each tribe was named after one of the 12 sons of Jacob. So parallel to that, our Lord chooses 12 apostles. Now, those 12 brothers became the physical progenitors of their tribes. And that's why their tribes are named after them. But the apostles are not called to be physically the father of particular tribes. That was a call for the Old Testament. New Testament is different. They are going to be progenitors of the church. And they are not going to pass on a physical seed, but rather, as it says in Scripture, <coughs> excuse me, uh, it, they're going to pass on an imperishable seed. Take a look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23, where it says, You have been born anew, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. But the word of the Lord abides forever. So the 12 tribes... You know, didn't have the, stain, the same staying power as the church. Do we not still speak of the ten lost tribes of Israel? After the Assyrian exile in 722 B.C., these tribes got sort of diverse. And one of the reasons they became diverse, by the way, and, and just sent out... Um, into these different nations, and they lost their identity. Why? Why did they lose their identity? Because they no longer centered on God. They worshipped other gods. They worshipped Baal and El and Anat and Asherah, these other gods of the Canaanites. And then they said, well, you know, Marduk is kind of like El or more, actually more like uh, Baal and Haddad is sort of like that too. So it's all really the same. And they just lost their identity because they did not focus on the one and only true God. This is key. Because the same process happens to Christians who cease focusing on Jesus Christ. It happens to Jewish people today who stop focusing their identity on the Lord God. If you don't stay focused on God, you lose your very identity as a people. And that's what happened to them. Now, here we have this imperishable seed of God's Word. God's Word is stronger than the genetics passed on from Jacob to his children and then to their descendants. And they became, as a result, the spiritual fathers of the church. They're not the physical fathers, but the spiritual fathers. Notice how St. Paul wrote about this. Ever, ever hear anybody say to you, how come you call your priest father? 
when I hear that, well, Father Mitch is going to talk about that uh, because calling us Father is in the Bible. Now, our Lord did say in Matthew chapter 23, call no man Father, no man teacher, no man rabbi. Okay? And why did he do that? In the Holy Land, where, where Jewish people lived, you had different schools of thought among the people. But even within the uh, Pharisee party, there were different schools within the Pharisee party. So you had the school of Hillel, a very famous rabbi, and uh, the school of Shammai. Shammai was another famous rabbi. And what did they call them? They didn't call them schools. They called them the house of Hillel. When you read Mishnah and uh, Talmud, you'll see, you know, Beit Hillel, the house of Hillel, says this. But Beit Shammai, the house of Shammai, says this. And the founder of that house was called the father of the house. And what our Lord is forbidding in Matthew 23 is that we are not to start our own sects. We're not to start divisions among ourselves that separate us from each other. That, that's in the Palestinian uh, Jewish context. But St. Paul and St. John speak about spiritual fathers. And when, he's, when they're among the Gentiles, they don't have the background from Pharisaism that affected the way they heard this. So we see in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 15, for though you have countless guides, and it says literally tens of thousands of pedagogues. Pedagogue is a teacher, right? Uh, for you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus, through the gospel. Notice, St. Paul insists on being called their father because by the way that he preached the gospel to the to Corinthians, he was their spiritual father. And so he insists on it. And then in the, um, uh, you know, the we, we also see in 1 John uh, chapter uh, three, no, excuse me, chapter two, first John chapter two, he addresses a whole group in the church as fathers, another one as little children, another one as young men. That there was a group of spiritual fathers within the church. So scripture does use this to apply to the leaders in the church, and that's what we still do. We still do that. So this is very important. And another element, too, is that they are going to be spiritual fathers by the fact that they baptize people. Remember how our Lord says in John chapter 3, the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verse 3, 
Jesus answered Nicodemus and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born anew, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And then Nicodemus doesn't understand. Jesus explained, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Baptism is how we are born again. And the one who baptized you, normally a priest, is the one who is a spiritual father. That's the idea, that you are born again for the kingdom of God. You know, if you're born in this country, you're born automatically a citizen. And if you are born of baptism, you are a citizen of heaven, as St. Paul teaches us in Colossians. Our citizenship is in heaven with Christ. And that is a citizenship that is eternal, and our spiritual father helps us to be born into that. So this is something that's very, very important to understand about the apostles. They are going to be spiritual fathers, not physical fathers of tribes. And they're spiritual fathers by preaching the gospel, and by baptizing people, okay? Very important. Now, you also see that the church did not get divided up into 12 groups. You don't see, we're the um, Simeon Church, we're the Church of John, we're the Church of James, we're the Church of James the Less. They, they didn't do that. They were all one church, even though they were the 12 apostles. So it's, this is, again, different than Israel, where they were divided up into 12 tribes. And that's a, a very important thing for us to keep in mind. Um, you know, remember how St. Paul teaches us about the church in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 to 6. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all who is above all and through all and in all. That the oneness of the church is what Jesus Christ came to give us. He didn't come to say, well, let's just start off a lot of different groups. No, he came to call us to the, the one church. And that's why he says, I will build my church on Peter, the rock, not my churches. You know, this is something that he very much wants us to do. And, you know, the word sect in the uh, New Testament is the word heresies, heresy. You know, that you don't want to divide up the church. And all of us have a responsibility. There's some divisions that we inherit and some divisions that people create now because there's still many, many new churches. There are getting to be close to 50,000 different denominations, you know, in this country alone. And people keep, now they have a sense of the spiritual unity of the church, 
but they also, uh, you know, so, uh, divided up. That's what we're called to do. And all of us are called to preach the one kingdom of God that Jesus Christ preached. And this is what he made, uh, asked his apostles to do. Now, at the same time, and this is going to be very important as we go into the next section, that each of these apostles was very much limited in his abilities. They also had a variety of divisions among them. And they were also very much sinners. This is something that you see reported in the Gospels. And what's important about that, as I've pointed out in the past, the apostles are the ones who told these stories to the evangelists. They didn't hide the fact that they were limited, weak, and sinful. They told the stories of their own sins so that they would become scripture. This is one of the reasons I've said over the years, one of the last things you want is to be somebody who is in scripture because they will tell your sins, read it at church, and call it the Bible. At least with People magazine, they throw it out every month and they tend to forget until the next scandal comes up. But with the Bible, it's told for centuries, thousands of years, people call a church reading about your sins. You don't want to be one of them. It's a good thing not to be in the Bible. All right, I tell you what, we're going to take a little break and we'll get ready to deal with the next section where we'll go through the lists of names of the apostles. Does that sound boring? Well, I hope it isn't because there's some really interesting things going on in those lists. So please stay with us. Let us now start to take a look at the list of names. Sometimes when we get the gospel where it just lists the names of the apostles, some priests get a little frustrated, you know. Well, not I. <laughs> I'm such a geek that I like lists of names. Oh, well. So in the New Testament, there are four lists of the 12 apostles. Um, actually, Three lists of the 12, one list of 11. The first list is in Matthew 10, verses 2 to 4, Mark 3, verses 16 to 19, Luke 6, 12 to 16, and then Acts chapter 1, verse 13 lists the 11 because Judas already committed suicide. Okay? So those are the lists. Um, 
in all four lists, we see that there are uh, three groups in each list with four names in each subgroup. And what's interesting, even though the order of names is not always the same, the first apostle in each of those three groups of four is always the same. So clearly what they had was these three subgroups with one apostle as kind of the head of that. Okay? And that's how our Lord got it. Because, you know, getting people into smaller groups to learn and teach and support each other is a helpful thing. So that's what, what he did. So, um, uh, so all four lists begin their three groups with Peter's the head of the first group, Philip is the head of the second group of four, and James, the son of Alphaeus, is the uh, head of the third group. Within each group, the names are the same. They put them in different order, but they have the same guys in each subgroup. This was clearly something that they had established and the Lord had established, you know, um, during the ministry. So, uh, and we see some of the names seem to vary a bit. Um, so uh, we see, for instance, Thaddeus is mentioned in Mark and Matthew, but he is called Judas in Luke and Acts. Now, and then you also see Simon Kananios is also Simon the Zealot. You know, so you see that name. And um, there's a fluctuation, something that we see also in the Old Testament, there's a fluctuation in the names of the 12 tribes of Israel too. They're not always the same. In Genesis 49, Deuteronomy 33, Judges 5, uh, Numbers 1 to 3, um, you know, Revelation chapter 7. Uh, so that even the list of the 12 tribes of Israel has variations like this, even variations in names at times. So um, especially the tribe of Joseph gets divided into uh, uh, Manasseh uh, and Ephraim. So you see that. We'll take a look at what's going on in each list. Let's take a look at the first list. First list is in Matthew chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. Now, first thing is that our Lord makes mention in, and we see this in Matthew 9, 36, that when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. This is common today, too. A lot of people in our society are experiencing a certain aimlessness. Now, sheep are not always that bright. As a matter of fact, they're never bright. You know, sheep are kind of dumb. Um, and they're helpless. Sheep are very helpless once you get them off a mountain. Up in a mountain, they do great. But uh, off a mountain when they're in the flatland, they're very vulnerable, you know, to uh, other animals. And so... Um, that's, that's how he sees them. And so in the face of people being without leadership, our Lord said to the apostles in 
Matthew 9, 38, Pray therefore the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Speaking there of God the Father, asking for laborers. And we, we see this in our time as we've seen vocations go down. Not only vocations to the priesthood and to the, the sisterhood and brotherhood, but also the vocation of marriage has gone down. Today, more than half of adults are not married. That's the first time we've ever had that happen because people are nervous about their vocations. They don't necessarily want to stay in their vocation. So we want to pray that people hear their vocation and follow it. And then in response to that prayer, in Matthew 10, verses 1 through 4, Jesus called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every infirmity. So he, has, he gives them the authority he has and the power he has. That's what he wants. Then it goes on. The names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. That's one group. Secondly, Philip. And Philip is always the head of the second group. Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas, and Matthew, the tax collector. Third group, always headed by James, son of Alphaeus. And it includes Thaddeus, also known as Jude, and Simon the Cananean, uh, also known as the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. The fourth, excuse me, the third group always includes Judas Iscariot. So you have it in that that group, um, you know, a uh, uh, good Judas and a bad one. One is the patron saint of uh, hopeless causes, and the other one became hopeless and committed suicide. Very important contrast about that last group. So again, we see that our Lord gave these uh, 12 his authority to cast out demons, something he'd done right away, and to heal the sick. And to this day, we still see that uh, priests have the authority to do exorcism, and though we make sure that it's done in union with the bishop, because ultimately it's the bishop that has that authority and he delegates it to certain priests. And priests also have power of healing. Very, you know, it happens more often than is reported. We just take it for granted. But many people who receive the anointing of the sick experience healing. Sometimes it's spiritual, sometimes it's physical. But that's part of what we're to continue doing. And in addition, they are to give the same message as Jesus. We take a look at Matthew 10, verses 7 and 8, where he tells them, Preach as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. So the same message and the same power. 
Then he adds a very important thing. You received without pay, give without pay. So this is something that is very important, that we cannot buy the power to cast out demons or heal. This is a gift of God. No one deserves, but he freely bestows. So we just do that and share it. And again, if you remember how our Lord had given the same message in Matthew 4, 17, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's what he tells the apostles to say. And this gives a very important element. Priests are not there to preach their own gospel, their own message. The bishops are not there to change the gospel. You cannot change the moral teaching of the church. Even if you're a, 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 a priest, a bishop, cardinal, deacon, doesn't matter. You may not change the teaching that we have received from Christ. And we are to pass that on. Uh, and the apostles were given that uh, same message. And then ultimately, ultimately, the apostles are to represent Christ and embody him. They're to, meant to embody Christ. They are to become other Christs. In fact, what we say in our theology of the priesthood is that the priest acts in the person of Christ. This is a very important principle. Not in his own person, not doing his own thing. This isn't Father Jim Bob's Mass. It isn't my Mass. It's the Mass of Jesus Christ. And I stand in the place of Jesus because I say, this is my body. I don't say, this is his body. That wouldn't be valid. I don't say Jesus baptizes you. Remember out in out west in one of the towns, a bishop had to be, have the baptisms redone because that's what the priest was saying. You can't change it. The priest acts in the person of Christ and he says, I baptize you. He can't say, um, well, God forgives you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Spirit. No, I absolve you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We act in the person of Christ. And that goes back to something Jesus our Lord said in Matthew 10, verse 24 and 25. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the dis disciple to be like his teacher and the servant to be like his master. If they have called the master of the house Baal-zebul, which they call Jesus, how much more will they malign those of his household? They speak badly of Jesus Christ, and they will speak badly of his disciples. Don't be surprised. Don't get your feelings hurt. This is what we have to accept if we're going to follow Christ. That's what he accepted. He even goes on to say in Matthew chapter 10, verse 40, He who receives you receives me. And who, who receives me receives him 
who sent me. This is how radically Jesus our Lord identifies his apostles with himself and he with his apostles and with the bishops and priests who come afterward. This is exactly what we have to understand. And he very much wanted to make his 12, his new Israel, like himself, in power and in holiness and in his message. But also that he would make them like himself in his suffering. This is very much what we see. So that's the, the, the first group. I think we'll stop there. Uh, we'll continue on with uh, the Gospels of Mark and Luke next time and talk about them because they, they have add a lot of very interesting things. So we'll take a look at it next time and continue this um, teaching. I think at this point, let's just start to take questions. And already we have somebody calling in, Dorothy in Illinois. Where in Illinois are you, Dorothy? Hi, Father. Thank you for taking my call. Uh, I'm in Tinley Park, which is a suburb of Chicago, sure. Illinois. Well, that's right. Down on the south side, right? Yes, exactly. Yes. So what can we do for you this fine day? Um, I have a question uh, about the creed that we say mm -hmm. uh, during Mass as a group. And in there it says, Jesus descended into hell. And I have a Protestant friend that goes crazy about that, that we say that in our creed. Yeah. And I really can't um, explain it. I asked our deacon, and he said something like, uh, he went in, in, into hell to take the people out of there with him. And I, and I, I couldn't understand because I thought you only went to hell. Yes, and, and you, you stay were, there. Sinner, you know, <laughs> and uh, and it, it almost sounded like it was a waiting place for mm -hmm. them. Yeah. Uh, until well, let me Jesus came to to save us on the cross. Yeah, Dorothy, this is a very important issue, and the the issue underlying this is that um, a lot of folks don't know Old and Middle English. Now, the creed, the Apostles' Creed, from which that comes, was translated quite a few centuries ago. And as you know, with language, language changes. So I grew up hoping to be groovy, but that's no longer groovy. <laughs> you know, they have other you know, questions and uh, or other ways of expressing things. That's, that's how language changes. And that's what's going on here. In older English uh, dialects, Helle was the place of the dead. What the Greeks called Hades, Hades, and what the Hebrew called Sheol. That's why the deacon said what he did that this is the place where souls go and they are not in the place of damnation. Hella 
did not mean the place of damnation until later. That was a later use of the word hell to refer to place of damnation. Uh, they would use uh, other words like the inferno, uh, Tartarus they used in Greek, sometimes used that in English, um, but they, uh, or Gehenna in Hebrew. So they would have other words to mean the place of the dead. But for those who were not condemned to hell, they still couldn't go to heaven. Nobody could go to heaven until Christ died and rose and opened the kingdom of heaven to the souls of the dead. And so our teaching is that he went down to the place of the dead. You can tell your Protestant friend this is found in Scripture with a slightly different word. In the first letter of St. Peter, chapter 3, beginning in verse 18, you'll see that Jesus went to the prison to preach to the souls that were there. Why prison? That is the term for this place of the dead that was used in the book of Job in the Old Testament. The place of the dead, Sheol, was compared to a prison. So our Lord went to the prison and it says he preached to all the souls who had died before his death on the cross. That's what he was doing. And if you want something else, in the early second century, there is a document called uh, the Second Letter of Clement. It doesn't seem to be exactly by St. Clement, but it was associated with his first letter. And it tells there that uh, when Christ came down among the dead, he began to preach to them, but Adam shouted out and said, Hark, my son comes to give us good news. It's a, it's a beautiful sermon, really is beautiful. And it it, this is how the Lord gives a chance to all the souls that had gone before him to hear the gospel and accept him in faith. That's what was going on there. It's just that in the creed, we use an older English word meaning the place of the dead. Okay? There you go, Dorothy. Let's get a... Another question here from our studio audience. Young man, where are you from? Um, originally, I'm from Mexico, but I live in Georgia. Good for you. So, so and what time. can we do for you this fine day? Um, just a question that um, we had, uh, me and my wife, while we were driving over here regarding our deceased family members or anybody's deceased mm -hmm. family members. And it popped up because my father-in-law, he left the church um, in they went to a, a funeral for a family member. And you can hear the <clears throat> someone coming up and telling them, well, you know, that was God's plan. You know, he needed, you know, this person. And they're Catholics, but mainly by name. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of mm -hmm. hard to, mm -hmm. and then my father-in-law, you know, he's on a different denomination. So mm -hmm. to him, he's like, how can you tell people that that was God's plan to, you know, take the daughter or whoever? Yeah. Yeah. So what can we tell people that? Yeah, you know? very important the, uh, question. Um, in fact, St. Thomas Aquinas deals with this very, very well in a couple places. His commentary on Job 
and also in his book against the, the, the nations, Contra Gentiles. And he talks about this very important distinction between God's perfect will and the will that is that permits things to happen. God does not want sinners to commit sin. You don't say, well, it was God's will. You know, these days we see so many killings and murders going on. This is horrible. And we can't say it's God's will. It's not. God never wills anybody to break his commandments. But he permits it. And then he can use it for another purpose. This happens constantly. In fact, every time we sin, God never willed any of us sin. And in some deaths, there is you know, a, a sinful act that inadvertently leads to the death. For instance, a guy gets drunk and plows into your car and kills your family. That's not God's will. Getting drunk is a mortal sin. God never wills any sin. But he can work through that. And this is uh, uh, important because, you know, uh, I have a, you know, a cousin. She just died last uh, this December or last uh, summer. But, you know, she had lost her first husband to a murder. He saved a woman who was about to be shot during a robbery, pushed her out of the way, but then they shot him. 22-year-old widow. She marries my cousin, and he died of cancer, leaving her with three children. And then her last, her, her second, well, first child was murdered while uh, watching babies, you know, babysitting. Guys broke in to, to molest her, and they killed her. And her, last, her second son died of fentanyl poisoning. I mean, this is horrible. And she, her question was, what did I do wrong that God would do this to me? And I had to explain, God never told anybody to kill her first husband, her daughter, or to poison our culture with fentanyl. This is not God's will. These are sins. And if these people who do such things do not repent, they will be in the hell that is the place of condemnation. But he can work through that, and despite those terrible sins, the way they deal with it is something very important for our own spiritual growth. And all of us have to deal with these things that we do wrong and that other people do wrong and learn how to adapt what God can use through these bad events. Okay? All right. Let's take a break. We'll come back with more of your questions and comments, so please stay with us.
Thank you. Thank you. First, I want to invite you to join me tomorrow night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time for EWTN Live. We'll be speaking with the Dean of Studies and a professor of philosophy at St. Michael's Abbey Seminary in California, in uh, uh, Orange County. It's Norbertine Father Sebastian Walsh, and we will talk about the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5. We want to help people go a lot deeper than just memorizing this list in Sunday school because as he himself writes in his book, that these are the heart of the gospel. We need to know these questions about the twelve, about the eight Beatitudes. So hope you join us for that. All right, let's have a caller. Uh, Joan, you're in the great commonwealth of Pennsylvania. What can we do for you? Um, good afternoon, Father. Um, I have a question about Judas. Mm -hmm. um, there's two different versions in the Bible, and I'd like you to flesh them out a little bit. Mm -hmm. The one is like um, after he led um, his gang and kissed Jesus, and um, he he realized that I shouldn't have did, did it, and he tried to give the money back. The silver That's pieces. in Matthew. It's in Matthew okay. 27. Right. And and then he, you know, he, he had the sadness in him, like, but then he went in despair and hung himself. Now, mm -hmm. that is like one version, but what confuses me is that in other, when you read the Bible, it says that, you know, he threw the silver at them. He didn't want it, but yet they didn't want it either because it was like blood money. So they mm -hmm. bought that field and... Then in another version, it had that Judas didn't hang himself, but like his insides explode. Mm -hmm. um, this is, that's in uh, Acts of the Apostles, chapter 1. And let me see if I can find that. That, uh, and so Acts of the Apostles, uh, you know, uh, tells this, uh, it's in Acts chapter 1, um, uh, verses 17 and following, that, uh, you know, that he uh, fell headlong and burst open in the middle and his guts uh, came out. Now, one of the ways that this has been uh, put together uh, is based on something that happens we know from when people get hanged. We don't do hangings much anymore. Uh, very few places use that as capital punishment. But one of the things that happens when a person is hung is that they lose control of their sphincters. And they, they, they do, uh, uh, you know, can't control themselves in elimination. Uh, so they, they soil themselves. And it may be that there's, the you know, whenever you have anybody as a witness to an event, they will speak about the same event and look at two different parts of what happened. 
one guy's focusing on the hanging and the other on how he lost control of his bowels, which happens during hanging. That's uh, one of the very typical things. So I think that's what's going on there. It's two aspects of the same uh, death uh, that, that go on. So that would be, that's my own sense of it, okay? We have a question here from our studio audience. Ma'am, where are you from? I'm from Freeport, Grand Bahama, the Bahamas. Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah, I, know, I can tell that it's a little too cold for you up here in Alabama. <laughs> so what, what's your question? My now? question is, um, why do Catholic use incense? Why do we use incense? Yes. If you go back to the Bible, one of the things that you see all the way from the beginning of Genesis through the end of the book of Revelation is that when they offered a sacrifice, it was a sweet-smelling sacrifice. Remember how often that occurs? Even when uh, Cain and Abel offer their sacrifice, Abel's sacrifice was a sweet-smelling one. And we also see uh, when uh, Noah offers his sacrifice, it was a sweet-smelling sacrifice. We see in Exodus through uh, Numbers that they're told to use incense when they offered their sacrifices in the temple. And then all the way to the book of Revelation, the angels and the saints are offering incense. You can see that in Revelation 5, verse 8, and in chapter 8, verse 3. So the church especially imitates the book of Revelation, that mass is meant to be a foretaste of the worship of God in heaven. So since they offer incense in heaven, which are the prayers of the saints, we offer incense. In fact, in uh, my parish, which is um, Eastern Rite, Maronite Rite Parish, uh, we, every day we say the psalm, may my prayers come up to you like incense. And my, uh, uh, my lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. That's why we do that. Does that help? Yes. Good, good. Yeah, it's right there in your Bible. So we want to keep that up. Young lady, what can we do for you this fine day? My question is, why is there no female priest? Why aren't there female priests? This is something that's very interesting. Israel never had them, did they? No, they, not in the Old Testament. But every one of their neighbors did. Did you know that? The Egyptians did, the Canaanites, all, all of them. You know, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, they all had priestesses, but Israel didn't. What's going on there? They understood, for one thing, that the priest, well, and, and we do this with our sacraments. What is a sacrament? Those of you who had the Baltimore Catechism, remember, a sacrament is an outward sign instituted by Christ to give grace. So, see, the nuns were good to you. They taught you well, uh, and they taught me too. This is, uh, this is what it is. And an outward sign always has symbolic meaning to it. As I mentioned earlier, a priest 
stands in the place of Christ. Christ is the bridegroom of the church. The church is his bride. So when we're talking about signs, the man symbolizes Christ as the bridegroom. Whereas nuns, notice how nuns wear wedding bands on their right hand to symbolize that they are the brides of Christ, symbolizing the church, and that the female symbolizes the church and the male symbolizes Christ in this. Now, at the same time that we symbolize Christ, still the holiest and highest member of the church is the Blessed Virgin Mary, a woman. Because it's just like in the military. We guys wear the uniform, and you salute the uniform. But there's another reality that everybody can share, and that's holiness. And Our Lady shares it in the highest degree, but we have the uniform to do the sacraments uh, representing Christ. So that's why. All right. We have run flat out of time. So may the Lord bless you all and keep you, cause His face to shine upon you, the Father the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. And Mother Angelica was inspired by our Lord to have this network brought to you by you. So please remember to keep us in between your gas bill, your electric bill, and your cable bill, and we'll be able to pay our bills too. Thank you, and God bless.